This New America NYC event took place on June 12, 2017, and is titled, I Was Told to Come Alone, and features Suwad McKinnon and Alexis Okeawa. Tonight, uh, I'm Alana Breutman, director of New America New York City. New America is a national think tank with a hub model, so we are today in California, Chicago, and New York, trying to connect the local to the national and, frankly, the international. We're very proud to introduce tonight two New America fellows um, who have both done a lot of work um, on extremism, so I think this is going to be incredibly um, interesting conversation, uh, an interview really, between Alexis Ukawul and um, Suad Mahenet uh, about their different experiences in the writing that they, uh, in the writing, in the, in the um, travels that they've experienced. Um, so we look forward to it. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So thank you. Um, I'm so happy to be here with you, Swad, um, and thank you for being here with us tonight. Well, thank you. I'm it's, also happy to be here yeah, with you. Thank you. It's actually the night before your book is released, so we actually have advanced copies that are for sale, so I would definitely take advantage of buying one. You know, you've, you've written what I think is an incredible book. It's a blend of reportage and memoir, really trying to get at the heart of why people are radicalized, you know, what makes a jihadist a jihadist. And it also includes your story as you know, a young Muslim woman um, born and raised in Germany of Moroccan and Turkish descent, and you navigating all these identities as you do this, um, as you do this reporting. Um, and I think what's interesting and rare about the story is that you decided you wanted to talk to people face to face. You know, a lot of reporting about extremism is, as we were talking about, is by often by following social media. You know, by seeing what terrorist Twitter accounts are doing, or news bulletins, but you decided you wanted to, to go talk to these people. Um, why? What was the motivation? Um, I would say that one of the main reasons was actually uh, an interaction I had with the wife of a, a firefighter who died during 9-11. Um, and um, uh, this was um, in 2002, and she came to, to Germany, to Hamburg, um, to to be to attend a trial there, and um, a couple of journalists, we went out with her for dinner. And during that dinner, she she looked at us and she said at one stage, "You know what? Actually, I I'm also very disappointed in you guys, you journalists, and our government." And we were asking her why, and she said, "Because nobody told us ever that there are people out there who are hating us so much. And why do they hate us so much? What?" what are the reasons for this hatred because we need to understand and it's our right to understand and um and she looked at me and and, and it, i felt you know i was the only person there who uh, was of muslim descent and it was like she was asking me for an answer and i had no real answer and um but i went back to the hotel with the feeling that maybe she's right actually maybe 
maybe we need to do more in order to 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 really let people know how these people think. And this is one of the reasons why I actually decided um, to, to do this kind of reporting, even though it's, it's risky sometimes. Yeah, well, speaking of the risk, I mean, you know, when you're interviewing ISIS commanders, um, militants from the Taliban, you're often told, as the title says, to come alone. You know, not with your phone, without your phone, um, without any type of communications, only with a notepad and a pen. I mean, can you describe what it's like, I mean, often getting this phone, whether it's from the media contact or a member of these extremist groups who says, sure, you can come interview us, but you have to come take this risk. Well, it's, um, it's, it's, it's not an easy to decision to, to make. And um, it's not like I sit there and I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah, wonderful. ISIS would like to talk to me. Let's go. I do try to measure the risks. I try to take uh, precautions as much as I can. It's not always um, possible to do so. So which means, for example, when I interviewed uh, Abu Yusuf, who is the ISIS, who is a very high level ISIS commander, he's actually one of the responsible people for external operations um, now at ISIS and a Shura member. Um, so before I went into this interview, and he insisted also that I should come alone, um, I uh, left a couple of phone numbers with my colleague, even though, frankly speaking, I don't know if the people uh, whose numbers are left with him would have been able to, to intervene because they were not members of ISIS. Right. Um, but uh, I decided, you know, this was in 2014, a couple of weeks after the so-called caliphate um, had been declared, and there were so many questions about this new group and who are they and what do they want. Um, and I decided, okay, let's. it's worth taking the risk. Um, even though I must tell you, Alexis, when I was in the car and this guy was sitting in the back seat and I saw that he, I could see that in his pocket there was something that looked like a gun, that was not a very good feeling to have. Right. But I just thought to, you know, it's, it's, it's stay calm and, and ask your questions. And I asked all my questions. We had, in fact, a debate, as I described it in the, um, uh, uh, in the uh, prologue. Um, and, um, and I got out uh, safely, but there were moments where I was also threatened. Um, this is the price you pay sometimes when you, um, when you try to stay neutral and when you, when you try to do this kind of reporting. Right. You know, what I thought was interesting about that exchange is you're talking to this ISIS commander, you're getting his views about... Um, about what he believes, and then you're pushing back. You're saying, you know, I'm also Muslim too, but I think it's harder what I'm doing, which is trying to make my way in Europe as a professional, dealing with all of these forces against me. So what, what, were, um, what were these people telling you? I mean, you said today um, on CBS, you're on, on the morning show, you said that what was interesting is that a lot of these extremists weren't talking about religion, they were talking about politics as why they got so upset with, with the West. Yeah, absolutely. So the first uh, couple of mo moments when I sit with them, it's most of the time they talk about foreign policy decisions of Western governments. They talk about what they call hypocrisy um, uh, of Western governments. Um, when you um, ask them what exactly do you mean by this, um, then it's very often they mention the war in Iraq in 2003, 
when they say, look, there was a war that was an unlawful war. Saddam had no weapons of mass destructions, but still um, uh, the US and the United Kingdom went in and there were no consequences for those who took the decision to go in. They mention, interestingly, a lot of cases that we forgot about, like um, uh, secret detention centers, renditions cases, you know, stuff that is no longer in our news, but things they are discussing a lot. And uh, and, and in, in, in basically, we, we end up having, having a discussion or debate about what they call hypocrisy of the West, where I try to push back. Um, uh, but... I've, I, I see that, the, the, and I'm surprised very often that this is still something they have on their mind. And um, in fact, I, I told this ISIS commander, for example, you are in a country that is not yours. Who gave you the right to come to Syria and to basically decide to take over? And, um, and then he said, well, this is Muslim land, you know, so yeah, yeah, it is okay to take over, for, for us to take over. So they have their own explanation and excuses. Um, now, they know, of course, that I have a totally different view on what they're doing from what, uh, from what you know, from, from, from them. I mean, they know that I'm not a supporter of ISIS, that I'm far away from, from that. Um, and it's very interesting to see how they react when I challenge them and um, when I use very often arguments... Um, like when they say, well, the Quran says this, I come with another verse of the Quran and say, but the Quran says this too, and you are actually putting this out of context. And we reach very often a point where I see that they get very angry, and this is the moment where I decide to stop, because frankly, I also like to live and stay alive. And um, yeah, so it's... it's um, but it's it's an interesting interaction where I see that they find excuses, they have for everything an excuse for all their actions and they don't understand. They try to to play the victim, like they say that they were victims of discrimination, that, uh, that Muslims are all victims of uh, Western hypocrisy as they call it, and they don't understand that they, they are becoming aggressor themselves and, um, and use this as an excuse um, for terrorism, and um, and that's something that I'm trying to show also in the book, where I'm putting the mirror into their faces, and um, it's not all very often um, easy, but yeah, it's it's a challenge. Right. Well, I mean, staying neutral seems to have been a challenge, or not staying neutral, but being neutral, because on you know on the one hand, um, you know you 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 get accused by you know sometimes your subjects who say that. Um, that you, that you should perhaps or something should should be more in tune with them. You know, you in Bahrain, and you're reporting critically and objectively on the protests there, and some activists got upset with you to the point that it led to a threat that um, German security services had to be called in. And then there was also another point where you were in Algeria, you're reporting on the um, Al Qaeda branch there, and then it was um, a situation where there was a, it was a CIA or FBI hit team that was called in because they were worried that because you had access to interview the leader of the Al-Qaeda branch there, it is, yeah. right, that, that <laughs> they want to take advantage of that and follow you in and perhaps put you in danger because of their own mission to perhaps take him out. So how is it, you know, dealing with all these competing sort of suspicions? It's very difficult. Um, I would be lying if I wouldn't say that sometimes I had moments where I was at home and I was asking myself, is, this, is it really worth it? Right. 
um, is it really worth it that you have at some stage security services showing up at your at your door and saying there's a threat against your life? Um, some people um, alongside the Turkish-Syrian border region are planning and plotting to kidnap you and to uh, behead you. Um, is it really worth it when you get attacked by um, so-called activists from Bahrain because you are not buying their narrative and you ask them critical questions and they're spreading all kinds of weird ideas about you on social media. Um, is it worth it when, um, yeah, is it worth it when maybe even services get suspicious of you, which happened at, in the early stages of my reporting. Right. I think by now they know who I right. am and they know why I'm doing what I'm doing. Right. But um, there were question marks. There was a time where I knew services had question marks about me and why I was uh, doing this. Um, this was, um, you mentioned the Al Algeria case. I, I went with my colleague Michael Moss. We had the plan to interview the leader of Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb. And at some stage, um, I described this in the book, um, some, somebody from the FBI shows up at the New York Times. I was back then working for the New York Times and tell, and, and they're saying that there's a threat against his life and he has to come back from Algeria. And then we had to make a we were both there. We had to make a decision. Are we both leaving? Are we staying? Or is he leaving and I stay? And I had a very weird feeling because I've, I found it, strange that there was a threat against his life but right. not against my life and um well you will see what the end of the story is when you read the chapter but i was um very shocked to figure find out later um uh, that apparently the plan was to have to get to have him out of algeria and out of the risk but that a hit team was in fact thinking i would go and finish the mission and interview right. the guy there and do whatever they had to do. We still interviewed the leader of Al-Qaeda in Islamic Maghreb, but <laughs> um, but it was those are the moments where you, I mean, frankly speaking, you're, you 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 go you you're at home and you you think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, does it ever become easier to do this? Or I mean, because you you speak in the book at a point when you had to go to Morocco to get away to kind of deal with the trauma of this kind of reporting, because what you're doing is not everyday kind of journalism. You know, it, it's, it's dealing with people, dealing with issues that are very taxing, um, and that can become very personal. Um, and so, how do you cope with that? Well, there is the small hotel in the mountains, in the Atlas Mountains, where I always find my time to reflect on things and to write things down. I think one of the reasons why, that's by the way, that's the hotel. It's so funny that the slideshow works with <laughs> it's it. It's all like right. a matching up. <laughs> so yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's really in the, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, as you can see, I, you have to be on a mule in order to get reception for the phone as well. Um, but what keeps me going are messages I get from readers and people who are grateful, that who do understand it's difficult to do this, but who really appreciate it. And um, and also, Alexis, I mean, there are so many people out there who talk about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all these groups, but um, who are basing their expertise or analysis on what they are reading on social media. And that's for, it's dangerous because... What ISIS puts out, what, what they are putting out on social media is what they want us to know and what right. they want us to believe about the group. So you will, uh, it, you will not understand really how um, it will be possible to deal with this issue if you don't speak to them directly. And um, 
uh, and that's one one of the reasons. So whenever I have these um, to deal with these difficult situations, I, I think back of Maureen Fanning, that was her name, the woman who lost her husband during 9-11. And uh, that keeps me going. It's people like her, messages from people like her. Um, and um, and the choice I made to 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 become a journalist, yeah, for for exactly that reason. Right, right. What what was something su surprising that you learned during your reporting? Or I'm sure there are many surprising things, but I mean, what were the, one of the things that stands out? Um, so uh, overall, it's the uh, it's sometimes how whenever I had access to also the families of some of the people I interviewed, like the Taliban commander. Mm -hmm. I uh, met his wife. Um, I am surprised what kind of strong characters they are married to. Um, the other very surprising thing is that, for whatever reason, some of those men feel attracted to strong journalist <laughs> characters too. Uh, <laughs> there, there are some some stories about this in the book as well. Um, but. Um, it's also the um, the uh, what is surprising to me today is we d I don't feel we have learned much, and unfortunately, when I see you know I had um, uh, during the Arab Spring I was in a, in a crisis with my, our profession to a certain extent yes. because I remember how I was telling colleagues look I know that some of those radicals including Dennis Kuspert who became famous because he married the FBI agent I don't know if you remember the story but some FBI agent went to Syria and got married to this um, ISIS commander and actually I was the first person to interview him long before he was ISIS uh, it has a chapter on him in the book but I saw people like him going into, you know, using the Arab Spring turmoil to go into, going, you know, they went to Egypt, to Tunisia and other places. And I was telling my, my colleagues, we have, a, there's a problem. This so-called Arab Spring might turn into something very, very dangerous in terms of security because those guys are moving from Europe to the Middle East and they're setting up camps. And back then, this was not the narrative people wanted to hear. It was like, hey, the Middle East is turning to full-fledged democracies. You high. Um, so I was, that was difficult because I saw it happening. And I, I felt um, we, we, we did not enough to, to also, frankly speaking, protect people in the Middle East from those characters. I, you know, Alexis, a couple of months ago, I sat with a little boy from... Uh, from Raqqa, who is now in Europe. He fled with, his parents fled to Europe. They live, I cannot tell you where, but they live as refugees in Europe. And there's this, this little child who went to ISIS schools and who lived for two and a half years under ISIS. And, um, and then this boy is describing how he attended beheadings how, um, you know, what those teachers were telling them. And then there was the moment where he asked me, where he said, why did you allow those guys to come to my country? And I didn't know what to tell him because the, the people who taught him and who were apparently um, his main teachers came from Europe, as he described it, and, and from other Arab, from, from Arab countries. But they were not Syrians. And, or Iraqis, and um, and this was this was a moment where I felt, yeah, we actually 
What did we do to stop it before it happened? Why are we always late? Why are we not? Um, so in the case of, of the rapper who married later the FBI agent, when I wrote about him in 2011, I remember I received phone calls from some of my security sources who said, this guy you wrote about, he's a nobody. Why are you writing about those people? They are and I'm like, no, this guy is recruiting people. He's a rapper. He's recruiting young people. And they, yeah, anyhow, unfortunately... Nobody wanted to listen. Right. Well, that kind of reminds me of, of how you write about reporting on the migra so-called migration crisis in Europe. You said that the narrative so far has been like, you know, these these are these poor people, um, very highly educated, coming in. We need to give them refuge. But what you've noticed is that even just speaking among some of them, that obviously n not all of them are Iraqi or Syrian, and that there's some there were some shady, shady characters that you interviewed, some who were part of Shiite militias. Um, and and you, you, you kind of noticed a possible risk in the way the narrative had been shaped around the migration crisis and also some of the people who may be coming in, which is maybe a bit of a controversial view to have, but it, it seems like something you're, you have your eye on. Yeah, I spent a couple of days um, in a train station, um, train stations in Austria and other places and I just walked around there and was just listening and I speak different dialects of Arabic. I, I mean, my father is Moroccan, um, but I studied in Damascus in Jordan um, and I also work uh, in different Arab countries and you know, you can, I can, and I do know when somebody is from North African descent or from a Middle Eastern descent just by the Arabic they speak because it's very different. different. And, um, and then I, just by passing through the train station and listening, I, I, I could see, you know, some people coming I mean, from North African countries uh, discussing about uh, all kinds of stuff you don't want to know about. Um, or even um, um, uh, people who came from Syria and who, um, who said that ISIS is actually great because it's, um, uh, you live there under an Islamic rule. And um, it's, so I was, and then the, the Shia militias as well. And, um, and I rewrote the story da down, my colleague Bill Booth and I, and then I received messages from some of my German colleagues who are even Austrian colleagues. It was the time when everybody said, yes, that's great. All is wonderful. And those people are going to be good for the countries. And they said, why are you writing this? This is, this is you know, um, this is not what, you know, now people should actually be more welcoming. And I said, guys, it's not about being welcoming or not. Or not. That's not our job to be welcoming. That's that we are journalists. Our job is to, to tell the truth, to say, to, to say what we hear and see on the ground. It doesn't mean... And I have to say this in all honesty, doesn't, of course, doesn't mean that there weren't people, there were, the majority of people, of course, came from Syria and they needed refuge. But I think it was very important also to say, look, guys, there are a lot of people here who are taking um, advantage of, of the situation and who say they're Syrian, they're not, and who are also shady figures. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, one, one great thing about your book is that you are examining jihadi networks, not just in the Middle East, but in North Africa, you know, in Europe. Do you think that there is something lost by the, the larger media focus just on the threat of ISIS in the Middle East? You know, when you do have AQIM, which is constantly evolving in North Africa and, you know, in other regions where there are terror threats. So one of the big challenges is, I think, when you... Um, I live, I grew up in the West, I'm a child of the West, 
with a Middle Eastern, a North African background, so I understand all the different um, uh, 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 groups, but I find it quite interesting. One of the biggest challenges is when you discuss extremism or the reasons of radicalization with people in the West. It's very often, um, I have the feeling they would like to look at the issues as an outside problem. You know, those people, so I hear very often, oh, those people from ISIS and Al-Qaeda, they don't like our democracies and this is why they want to attack us. Or I hear, you know, they are becoming radicalized because they don't like our free societies. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Let me just tell you that a couple of thousands of ISIS fighters were born in Europe, grew up in Europe, and are children of the society, whether you like it or not. So don't treat this always as an outside problem, as if it's coming from you know, the Gulf states or Pakistan, Afghanistan. It's a problem we have in our societies. And I'm saying this, or I'm emphasizing uh, this uh, even further, because as long as we don't uh, see it as an issue that happens in the midst of our societies, we will not be able to, um, you know, to, to, to fight the reasons of radicalization as long as we are not willing to listen to those who turn towards this ideology, who were born in Europe, who grew up in Europe, or even in the United States, we have some ISIS members who are Americans as well. Um, we will not be able to understand what made them to what they became. They were not born like this, but there are reasons. It's not an excuse for what they're doing, but if we want to, um, to be able to, to make the societies safer, we will have to deal with the issues that, um, that happen here in our countries. And, um, and a lot of people, when I speak to them, those who grew up in the West and um, who were born here, and when I ask them, what, what was the point for you? Why, did you, why were you, got, did you get interested in this kind of ideology? They often said that it was a moment in their life where they no longer felt accepted by the society they, they, they uh, you know, in Europe or in other places. And I think it's a very important point, Alexis, because we live in a time where some politicians like to, um, you know, to, to blame a certain reli religion, in this case, Islam or Muslims, as, as the reason or the source of uh, why people radicalize. And they don't want, in fact, to deal with other reasons that play a role. Um, religion is, is not, religion is the excuse, but it's not the reason. Right, right. And, you know, I also wanted to ask you about being a woman doing this kind of reporting. I mean, I find often that um, Western female reporters, when they talk about reporting um, in Muslim countries, they refer to themselves often as like a third sex, that they get sort of more intimate access, they're not seen as women. But I think it seems a little bit different when you're a woman who um, shares either the same religion or the same ethnic background, because they do still see you as a woman, but you do get that access, as you said, many of them often like strong women. But it's a tricky thing you have to navigate. I mean, at one point, you're in a refugee camp in Lebanon um, having tea with militants and joking, having a joke with them about a second, taking a second wife. And it's this tricky, you know, seems like a thing where you're always having to it. It was an it. awkward moment, actually. Right. I, um, it, was a, it was a very weird tea meeting, too, because the tea meeting turned into an interrogation. They interrogated me, and there was, in fact, somebody sitting behind those two people the leader and his deputy, 
and he pointed a gun uh, at me the whole time during the whole uh, interrogation team meeting. And at some stage, I, I felt, okay, I, I was, first of all, very nervous. I didn't know what was going on there it was because uh, I wasn't expecting uh, to be in an interrogation. And at some stage, this deputy asked me if I was married. And I said, ah, oh, yeah, here we go again. Right. Next, if I say no, the next question is going to be, do you want to be, be, be a second wife? And I just said, okay, why not just tell him, why are you looking for a second wife? <laughs> and I said this, and it was the moment where out of a sudden all these people started laughing, except for him, and I didn't know what was happening. The person who was arranging the meeting was just doing this. And I'm like, <laughs> what's going on now? And then... Alapsi, he was the leader of this terrorist organization, turned to his deputy and says, I'm not sure if my daughter would now allow you already to take a second wife. And I'm like, oh, shoot. <laughs> it's the son-in-law. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it's your son-in-law. <laughs> okay. And this is your... <laughs> and I'm not interested. It's fine. <laughs> and, uh, but... They, they were, it was a moment where, they, where the ice broke, um, even though, I mean, it, it was really a very scary, scary situation. I mean, they had this black flag on the wall and there was on the, in the left corner, there was like a bazooka and then an AK-47. And I had really no idea what was, what was going to happen. They asked me all these questions. It was uh, not funny. Um, but this broke the ice and then he later agreed to give me the interview, yeah. But is it constantly having to um, be, you know, when you're having these encounters, trying to diffuse the situation? Because, I mean, after all, the, the rapper that we were talking about, the German one, who the FBI agent recently married and then escaped, he um, wanted to kidnap you. He wanted to, in order to either marry you or behead you. Those were the options, apparently. And, um, and yeah, you well. know... To the point that the German have married him, I can tell you that. <laughs> to the point that the German security services didn't want you to go to the Syria-Turkey border for quite some time. So it, it must. They be. were quite upset when they saw that a year later I went and I interviewed the ISIS commander. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I mean, uh, we we talk about this now, um, uh, but I can tell you, for a couple of days, I had no idea what was going on, and it was very difficult on me. It was difficult. Um, also because I was worried about all the people, uh, you know, uh, my family. Um, uh, I had no idea what it, what this would mean for, for my profession. Um, it was interesting because the rapper did reach out to me. I, I tried to, of course, understand, understand what is happening here. Why would they... Why would they do this? Um, um, I must tell you, for a couple of days, I had no idea really why he wanted to kidnap me. So the only message I got was, they want to kidnap you, and there is uh, a talk about a Daniel Pearl scenario. So when you hear this, and I had no idea wh why, what was the, the reason, um, until a couple of days later, um, when I was told, yeah, he apparently has the plan to... Uh, give you the two choices either marry him or you will be beheaded and they will make a video out of this and I was like aha uh -huh, okay anyhow um, it's there were a couple of situations where I had diffused marriage proposals um, and I very often try to do it by saying you know my parents are going to decide which no longer I mean they know it's, it's, it's not the case but they understand that 
this means um, that I try to be a diplomat and just say no. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Um, was there anything you had to leave out of the book? Yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> quite a lot. Quite a lot. Um, there were a couple. So I wrote this book while I was still report uh, while I was reporting on incidents. Um, uh, I um, I did, for example, I do, I do not unveil uh, reveal the identity of pe of certain people. Uh, the person um, um, Abu Yusuf, the ISIS commander, is still alive. He's out there. He's um, uh, I did not say who he is. I know who he, I know his real identity, of course. Um, but that's just it's part of my job. Some other people, the person who um, I had the conversation um, with when um, when he uh, thought I knew everything about Jihadi John and then gave me the the, the last name of Mohammed Mwazi. So this was somebody from inside from within from ISIS. Uh, his name is not mentioned. There are a couple of other things I didn't mention in there, um, just because first of all, my publisher said I had only so and so many sites to write about, but also because I think I was trying to put a book together that will, where readers, you know, will get some better understanding about A, how those people think, but B, it's not me telling the reader how these people think, I let the people talk in the book. And um, and at some stage I just, uh, I, I had to stop. I mean, I can certainly also tell you what was not planned um, for this book was the epilogue. Yeah. The epilogue um, wasn't planned to be the story. Right. Um, yeah. Right, well, yeah, that leads me to my next question. I mean, with the epilogue, you know, you're, it starts as a normal assignment. You're going to cover the aftermath of terror attacks in Germany, um, you know, uh, in Munich, um, and where you also have relatives. But then all of a sudden, you hear from your relatives um, that their son is missing, and so you get sidetracked because it, you, you abandon your duty and you're trying to help them find out where their son is. You're trying to use your sources, your police sources, whatever you can, and then. And then sadly, it turns out that the boy was um, killed in the attacks. Yeah, so I was, I was actually, um, so what happened is that um, we, we received um, uh, the news that um, a man who looked Middle Eastern was uh, shooting around in, uh, uh, in, in Munich at the shopping mall. And uh, we thought it could be somebody, maybe this whole incident has an ISIS background or Al-Qaeda background, so I was sent to go to Munich. And on the way to Munich, I learned that my cousin's son was missing, John. But we just thought, I mean, that he had been in this area and went with a friend, with his best friend, in fact, to the area. And I was still reporting, but I thought it is just a coincidence. He's going to be fine. He's just, you know, somewhere. And, and I actually asked sources, police sources, in case if they see him or if they could track down his phone number or his phone, sorry, his phone to let us know, and they, they said, yeah, of course. And um, so I went on reporting, on, and then I went to the place where the, the families were waiting for their beloved ones to, to be transported from the area where the shooting happened to the stadium, where they all were waiting. So I went there. I was still reporting until my, and then my sources stopped answering my phone calls and messages, and I, 
had this very, very weird feeling until, yeah, we, we learned that night that he was one of the victims, that he had been killed. He was 14 years old. And the minute I heard that he was killed, I, I sent um, immediately a message to my editors and said, I, I can no longer report here. I have to, uh, the boy is dead. That's, um, I cannot be the neutral journalist. And um, yeah, and then I, I, I witnessed, of course, what uh, went through the, the family, what happened there. My, my cousin and his wife, they've been, you know, through hell for days. Uh, we went, uh, we, it, this brought back some old reporting trips, some things I've witnessed where um, I had to deal with families who had lost their children. And, and then I have to tell you, it took me, uh, you know, it, it was very difficult for me to write this chapter and to write it from the perspective also, I mean, to, to give, to write about the, the, the shooter um, from as neutral perspective as possible. To describe that he had psychological issues, to describe that he um, had, uh, as a child, he, he went through uh, difficult times, you know, um, to explain what led to, uh, to, to him doing this, which I do in my other reporting. But in this case, when this person kills somebody from your own family, um, it was a very difficult task um, for me to, to write this chapter. Well, I can imagine, and it's very powerful and moving. Um, so, you know, with my own book, I, I, I write a lot about people who are resisting extremism, and it seems like through your writing, you're also doing the same. Do you consider your journalism to be resisting extremism in a way at, through the, you know, the power of the stories? I think my my reporting, or I'm trying to um, to do a, a couple of things with this reporting. One is I try to explain, mm -hmm. um, but you know the fact, just the fact that a woman of Muslim descent um, unveiled the identity of Jihadi John, who beheaded some of our colleagues and who became this very important elusive figure for ISIS. Uh, was also a message to people. It was a message to them, but it was also a message, I hope, to people in the West to see um, who, you know, as you, as you know, some people believe that, um, have this idea that all Muslims are, are, you know, are somehow complicit or that they are right. not doing enough. And right. I, said, I said to somebody recently, I said, how much more can you do than basically taking away the most elusive figure of this group, which was Jihadi John, frankly speaking. He was this poster boy. And um, so, yeah, to a certain extent, it is also resisting that. And, um, and I'm trying, of course, also to reach some young men and women who are not, who are in between, the, you know, who, who are maybe in the moment in their life where they feel they don't belong to a society because of, Things that politicians say, or because of whatever happens in their in their in their in their lives, and to tell them, look, this is not the alternative, mm -hmm. as I told um, the ISIS commander, and don't fall for this easy answers, and don't fall for this ideology, because you're not turning into a hero; you're turning into a killer. Right, right, right. Well, 
thank you so much, Saad. Thank you. Um, I think we'll go to Q&A now. Thank you for your courageous reporting. Uh, I have two questions. First of all, when you talk to counterterrorism experts in the West, they always have interesting explanations as to why these phenomena are occurring. They tend, in my opinion, to downplay socioeconomic and cultural factors and then you know, in, try to emphasize individual uh, malfeasance or alienation, et cetera. And I was wondering what you make of the de-radicalization programs that occur in Europe and the United States. And secondly, I've been following uh, Iraq for many years, since 1982. I reported on Iraq during the Gulf War. I worked for the News Hour, And uh, I must admit that this is always very difficult to contemplate now. And when you look at the fighting around Mosul, there are hundreds of thousands of refugees, much more than the Obama administration planned to deal with. I think they planned for 200,000. Now they're about 400,000. What do you make of the, uh, what could be a ISIS 2.0 or 2.6 coming out of this if these issues are not dealt adequately with the you know, people who are refugees from a, from a serious conflict? Would you mind actually also introducing yourself and can I ask whoever asks the uh, question? My name is Jim Dingman. Uh, I work at Pacifica Radio, but at that time I was working for the, uh, for, uh, the McNeil Air News Hour and I had covered. Uh, the Gulf War as a journalist and had written about Iraq, the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s. So this has always been very weird for me to deal with the past 15 years. So um, to ask, uh, to answer, answer your uh, question on de-radicalization programs, I have not looked into the de-radicalization de programs here in the U.S. I can so I cannot comment on them, but I can tell you about um, some of the work that has been, uh, that is going on in, in Europe or even in uh, North Africa and in other places. Um, look, I, I don't believe we can, you can bring back everybody. I mean, there is a certain border that or line that people have crossed and I, I don't think you, there's a, a de-radicalization program that will be able to win those people back, which is when somebody chooses to take a knife and cut the head of a person, I think it's going to be very, very difficult, first of all, to, to really, you know, to get this person back. I think there, there would be ch chances to reach those people before they choose to go to, um, to travel to Syria and Iraq or to join those groups and before they... Um, uh, frankly speaking, go and fight. Um, there's a case that I'm talking about in the book. Uh, it's, it's a boy called Pero, and his parents managed to bring him back. But the only reason they, they managed to also, or the de-radicalization worked in his case, was because he did, not, uh, um, he did not participate in fighting. They were able to get him out of Syria and out of the group of those um, organizations before he was sent on the battlefield. And I can tell you this happened, this case happened in 2013 and the boy is doing quite well. He has nothing to do with these groups, but also because the de-radicalization happened on different levels. There were people talking to him on the level of religion, like uh, there were imams who explained to him why what, was, what, what, uh, what those groups told him in Syria 
was not accurate. On the other hand, uh, teachers were involved who actually also worked with him a lot in order to bring him back into the school circles. Social workers were involved. So it's a whole, and the family. So the family plays a very, very important role too. Um, uh, he came from a broken family and people actually spoke to the parents and explained to them how important it was that they would actually get their act together and take more care about their kids instead of like uh, taking, you know, making money because that was all the father was uh, cared about for many years. And um, now it's, it's quite well. So this is a person who was, you know, who, where, it's, where it worked. There are other cases I can tell you where it didn't work where people actually came back from Pakistan, people tried to de-radicalize them, and next thing happened was they went to, to, to Somalia. So it is really very, very difficult, and it depends on how deeply involved the person is already with the ideology. On the Iraq question, we heard that um, some that uh, U.S.-backed militias are apparently now uh, in areas in, in Raqqa and uh, are uh, taking over areas in Raqqa. Look, I've been in I've been in Iraq in 2003, and I saw what militia uh, what what militias did there. Um, I believe one of the reasons why ISIS was able to become so strong was because some of those militias committed also human rights atrocities and nobody really cared about it all those years. So that a lot of the Sunni tribes felt at some stage they had no other choice. Um, it's either this group, you know, and in 2014 ISIS was not, like at the beginning, they were presenting themselves as, you know, we are protecting the Sunnis from all those evil Shia militias. I mean, this is how they how they were selling their 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 group to um, to the to the Sunni tribes in 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 the Anbar region. Um, so, if today we are you know Western countries are making the same mistake and do not understand that some of those militias are actually part of the problem, then I'm afraid if it's not ISIS, Al Qaeda will gain more power. We have Bin Laden's son now uh, playing a bigger role. I've written about this with my colleague Joby Warwick recently. He's, uh, he's becoming the new superstar within Al-Qaeda, which actually, I think, uh, will uh, uh, make uh, this group that everybody forgot about. Um, we will hear more from them in the, in the near future, unfortunately. So, yeah, I agree with you. If the same mistakes are uh, committed again, yeah, there, there will be another group, whether it's ISIS 2.17, uh, sorry, 27, or Al-Qaeda 2.2022. So it's not over. It's not going to be over by um, making them disappear from, uh, from Raqqa. My name's Andrew. I'm a reporter at Al-Qaeda. It's called The Independent uh, from the UK. Could you please uh, score on a scale of 1 to 10 how effective you think uh, Donald Trump's decision to drop the largest bomb since the Second World War was encountering uh, extremists uh, in Afghanistan. Do you think it was anything other than a recruiting tool? Uh, and if you don't think it had uh, any positive effect, what do you think the military strategy behind it was? So I, I cannot comment on this specific event. I, uh, I'm sorry that I, I, can't, I cannot give you... Um, give you this, this line from 1 to 10, but what I can tell you um, is that I certainly have spoken to um, 
to some people from ISIS who told me that they are using uh, some of what Donald Trump said during his campaign, um, uh, election campaign, about Muslims and Islam in order to, um, to recruit people, um, to basically tell them, look, um, here, uh, this is, you know, uh, this is this uh, candidate, now president, and this is what he said about Islam and Muslims. So they are using um, words matter, you know, they are using that um, in order to once more emphasize to, to, to Muslims, you will never become part of the West, you will never be uh, fully accepted. And um, I'm really sorry about the question you asked, but I, I don't feel that I'm in a position to answer that. I don't think I, um, I have not uh, spoken recently to people in that part uh, about that question. Well, I think we see where we are today, right? I mean, um, uh, there was a uh, there was a long fight against uh, Al Qaeda, and right, Al Qaeda, uh, uh, Tora Bora was bombed, uh, Afghanistan was bombed. Did it make Al Qaeda disappear? Not really. Um, ISIS is, is 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 there, so that's that's why I believe the the problem is, and, and I'm trying to explain this in the book by by just looking at military. Solutions. That's not a solution. The ideology is out there, and um, it's so we have to look at other issues that have to do also with with issues in our countries. I mean, you 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 work for the Independent, um, which uh, is you know in the UK. So there were also a lot of of discussions about whether the UK anti-terrorism laws are actually helping or pushing more people towards uh, radicalization. And I think. Those are discussions we, our societies have to have, have to have. What is the reason? Why would somebody who grew up in the UK or in the United States or in Germany or in France, uh, who was born there, um, you know, the, no one who feels at home and who feels fully accepted in a society will take an action against the society. And what is the point where people actually feel they are no longer accepted? And this is this is what I'm trying. Those are the stories, or those are one of the some of the points I'm trying to explain in the book. Um, I want to speak to that question. I was very struck by your comment that a lot we have to see that a lot of these people were raised in Europe, uh, are children of the West. Uh, you describe yourself as a child of the West. Could you speak to your, uh, I assume you grew up in Germany, partially. Um, As you can hear from my English. I no, not really, not really. Your English is excellent. Um, but what is it, do you, what do you see in German society that allowed you to become a journalist, uh, uh, a um, supporter of women's rights, and somebody else uh, went in the opposite direction? And do you think Germany is different from, say, France or the UK? Well, in my case, it's a bit more complicated because I lived as a child for three and a half years in Morocco. And I, um, so I was very lucky. I grew up with a very strong, I lived with a very strong grandmother. She was, I would call her the first feminist I met in my life. She divorced three husbands. She brought up her, her kids on her own. Um, she did not allow people to mess around with her. I'm describing you also in the book. Um, and um, 
you know, she passed this on to me. I, I've been to Quran school in Morocco, so I, um, and we had, it, I think it's the whole package of circumstances. We had Jewish neighbors. I played with the Jewish kids. Um, then when my parents decided to take me back to Germany, I actually was taken to a Christian kindergarten and I played Virgin Mary twice in my life until the girl who played the archangel Gabriel burnt my hair uh, with a candle. Uh, but why am I telling you this? Because my grandparents as well as my parents in Germany and, the, um, and I had godparents who were who, who German, um, this whole mixture helped um, to, you know, f to, to, to build me as a, as a person uh, who grew up with an understanding that we have so many things in common. Um, as people, as, uh, you know, religions, my parents would always, and my grandparents would talk about what we had in common with Judaism, with Christianity, and, you know, that uh, Jesus is also a prophet in, in, in Islam. Um, um, so I think that the base was very important. Um, the, but... Do you ask me, did I feel ever discriminated uh, in Germany? Yeah, I felt discrimination in Germany. I'm describing the, the point. Um, but I think that the whole support system I had and the, and, the, uh, and the, the reality I saw, for example, when the houses of Turkish guest, when, uh, guest workers burned in Germany in the 90s, there were, they were a couple of right-wing um, groups who, who burned the houses of those families and they died. Um, I felt fear. And I told my parents, I had read a lot about the Holocaust actually back then, and I tell my, told my parents, pack your stuff, first they killed the Jews and now they're after us. I mean, this was re real fear. And, uh, but I learned, for example, that it, members of the Jewish community went to the families, the Turkish families, and showed them support. And this really touched me. And those were things where I said, no, it's really worth um, staying here and 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 um, making you know be becoming somebody who helps to build bridges and um, and when I was 13 I watched the movie All the President's Man and this was actually the reason why I became a journalist and I thought yes uh, you can you know here is what my grandparents told me that uh, it's important uh, it's powerful if you can write because you will you know those are the people who will write down what history is, but it's also maybe a tool to build bridges. And that's, that's why I think I took a different path. But also because I do know what is written in the Quran. And I mean, I don't, this whole uh, uh, cutting and paste from some of those ISIS recruiters or Al-Qaeda recruiters, I mean, when I argue with them, when it comes to women or when I argue with them about jihad, they know, I mean, they know that I know this stuff. And, um, so then, I think that's also very important to um, to to basically show them um, <laughs> uh, that I know they are cutting and pasting stuff out uh, out of context. Uh, hi, um, I'm Marion Dreyfus. I'm a journalist, and um, I was struck by the fact that you said you interviewed a young chap, a young boy, who got educated in the system that you're describing, but then said to you, how is it that you could let this happen to us? And I thought that was unusual in that he could exempt himself from all of his brainwashing, all of his uh, tactical and strategic and educational nonsense, and take himself out enough to ask you that, which uh, gives me hope. And also, secondarily, um, the, the 
it is not a chicken and egg kind of situation. The, under Obama, uh, the mass of the recruiting took place. Not now, it took place then. And, and it's a little bit unfair to say that the recruiting is now from other things that are happening after the fact. It, it's, the recruiting took place because nothing too much happened to stop them. And it just went on and on and built and built and built, as these things do. I, but I think you misunderstood. I didn't say that recruiting is just happening now. I, I actually, that's not what I said. I'm just saying, I think you referred to what I told this colleague about the Donald Trump, uh, uh, Donald Trump statements. Is that, no, no, I, I, no, no, I'm not saying recruiting is ju happening just now. It's been an ongoing process and I'm describing this actually in the book and the reasons for it, but I, told the colleague when he asked me about the, the, the bomb that Donald uh, President Trump uh, dropped on Afghanistan, I told him that what I know is that ISIS recruiters are using some of the statements that he made. They copy and pasting that in order to show people, Muslims in the West, that the President of the United States is thinking like this about Islam and Muslims and they are using it. It's not, it's not, I'm not saying at all that recruiting is happening just now. That, Maybe just to, to explain the misunderstanding. No. I don't know. I'm not putting it just on this president. I answered a question. I think it's a, it is an ongoing process. Absolutely. It is, it is an, it is, it, no, you're absolutely, I mean, I'm not saying that you're wrong. I think we are on the same page. I'm just saying you misunderstood. Nobody said it's happening under this president. We just explained that they are using words uh, of whoever. This was now President Trump, but of course they also used, when President Bush said this is a crusade, they used it. They're using it. So this is why words matter. And this is the only reason why I brought up this, this example. So... This is not. Yeah, it's it's an it's an ongoing process. It's not something that happened under one certain president, and um, so this is not you know just to make this clear. Uh, hi, my name is Gordon Skinner. I'm a documentary filmmaker, uh, and media literacy uh, educator. Okay, so if there was an indictment about journalism, what would you say that is, and also what would you say is the space or the opportunity for individuals involved in journalism and media to actually exercise and empower and encourage a different didactic dialectic? Well, I can, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a very huge topic that, uh, and, and it's an important topic, but one point I make, for example, just because there are so many other questions, um, that and I've seen this during um, during the the, the so-called Arab Spring. Can you hear me now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> during the so-called Arab Spring, that some sometimes I felt um, we journalists turned into activists and um, reporters. I mean, that's some that's that's something. You know, when when you write a column, when you're a columnist, or when you're an opinion writer, then you can do that. But when you are a reporter on the ground, um, then you should not do that. You should stay neutral and, um, and you should ask actually all the, the different groups, uh, you know, uh, similarly critical questions. And 
you know, that's one of the points I make in the book, for example. Um, I think we are in a very difficult situation, given that there are, um, there are you know, um, that there's a leadership um, or that there are some leaders who, who put out this, who are putting out the statements uh, that this is all fake news. Um, because, again, it's a little bit similar to what I'm hearing from members of ISIS or Al-Qaeda who are accusing us of being, um, you know, fake news to a certain extent as well, that we are not fair reporters, that we are uh, just, uh, you know, that we are all CIA agents or agents for what, uh, whoever. Um, so it's, a, it's very, very dangerous to, to do that. Um, and, um, but I think there is a duty and a chance um, for, for us as well to, to, to basically now understand how important the profession is if we understand that we also have to do it in a neutral way, being critical towards all the sides as a reporter. And that's what I'm trying to do all the time. Hi, um, my name is Fiona Smith and I worked on and in the Middle East from around 2010 right through the so-called Arab Spring and was totally burnt out by the time I left in 2015. Um, but one thing that I was um, looking at was about funding streams going to jihadist groups and I'd be really interested, particularly given that we do live in very interesting times in the US where one particular country, Qatar, has been identified as funding jihadist groups, yet Saudi Arabia in the past, one could argue, has been equally responsible for that. So it would be really good to just get a sense from you about where does the money come from? Uh, so there's a, it's, very, it's a very interesting question because don't forget there was a time where, um, and this was certainly happening also under um, President Obama, where some groups um, that were um, working around the, alongside the, you know, in Syria or other places were seen as allied groups and there was training, there was a lot of funding, weapons, arms were funded and went from um, uh, countries with the knowledge and the support of the United States, I mean, from Gulf states or even Turkey um, to those groups who supposedly were fighting against Bashar al-Assad. Um, and I remember I wrote a piece where I said, the enemy of your enemy is not your friend, um, is not necessarily your friend, um, is where I was trying to, to say that we were running into this, possibly into the same mistakes that were done in Afghanistan. If you remember when um, we were, you know, groups were funded to fight the, um, the, the, the Soviets. So, there was certainly a time where, with the knowledge of the United States, uh, groups were funded. And some of those people, I've met some ISIS or al-Nusra fighters who told me that they were part of the training. Um, uh, they participated in the training that was funded by uh, the US, the UK, and European, other European countries. Um, so there's that. Then there are individuals from the from the Gulf states who are um, uh, supporting and funding some of those groups, but there are also individuals in Europe and in Western countries who, through the Havala system, and this is still functioning. Havala is a system where, for example, somebody uh, in the UK or in France gives money to a person, and then this person knows somebody uh, uh, in uh, in Turkey, whether it's in uh, Hatay or in Kilis, and contacts this person and says, look, uh, you 
there is a, another guy who's coming, crossing the border from Syria, very often ISIS fighters, give him this amount of money because somebody else paid this amount of money in Europe. So there's different sources for it. And, and especially the Havala system is very, very difficult for intelligence services to, to tackle. So we have to, again, look a little bit into the mistakes that were made in our part of the world when groups were funded under the name of fighting against the dictator and where some of those weapons and arms, uh, you know, where, where or some of those fighters that were trained ended up. Um, but also today, money is still going into this region. And it's um, still possible for ISIS fighters to cross into Turkey and to, to get this money, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Suad. As you told me, you'll, you'll be on Morning Joe tomorrow uh, if you want to listen. And then, of course, her copies of her book are here, uh, which she will be signing as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons, non-commercial, 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.